This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now, we've been watching uh, this next story unfold thanks to reporting, great reporting by Zach Meider and Zeke Fox. It's a series of stories about the unregulated cash advanced industry, the questionable individuals who are involved, the consequences for small business owners who really don't read the fine print, and so much more. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Zach Meider is our projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He's joining Paul and me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Paul, we said this reads like a movie. It reads like a movie. It reads like it was told, you know, ripped right from the script of The Sopranos, you know, not necessarily the, the highest end uh, organized crime, but just a very shady. So, Zach, if you could just start us off. I wasn't even really aware that there was this unregulated cash advance business. Can you talk to us about the industry a little bit? How big is it, and how did they escape regulatory oversight? Sure. So this business really only got big after the financial crisis a decade ago, and that was because when small um, when banks were pulling back on lending, a lot of the the, um, the people that needed the most were small businesses. Banks weren't lending as much, and so this kind of new industry popped up that could essentially avoid any kind of regulation about lending because they they characterize their cash advances as not being loans. So it allows them to sort of do essentially whatever they want. And this this industry's gotten really big. We think maybe $15 billion, depending on how you measure it, it, last year. And so because it's unregulated, it's kind of become a magnet for people who, say, got kicked out of the securities industry or are barred from the mortgage industry because of criminal convictions or things like that. They all kind of gravitated um, even people who have connections to organized crime. Which leads us to folks like Joe the Cat, Buddy, and Gino, which is who you write about. There's five stories of folks, and if you haven't read them, you should go to Bloomberg.com and check them out right now. And one was the cover of Bloomberg Business Week a few uh, weeks ago. So tell us about these individuals, this latest installment of the story. Yeah, so there's this one guy named Gino Joey who worked for a one cash advance company for about six years, and his job was to travel the country and kind of surprise show up at the at the you know uh, small business that's behind on their payments to this cash advance company. He would show up, and um, according to many of the borrowers who were on the receiving end of these visits, try to intimidate them. He's an ex-con. Uh, he, he's done about ten years, a little more than ten years in prison for things like uh, felony assault, uh, criminal mischief, uh, you know, smashing somebody's. Uh, uh, window out of their car with a baseball bat, violating a protective order. And uh, so these a lot of these borrowers we talked to were absolutely terrified by this guy. He's a skinny little thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, when he, one time when he got out of prison, he, he tried to promote himself as a physical trainer to the stars, actually, uh, with a jailhouse workout sure. that he'd kind of figured out in, when he was in prison. And, he, you know, so he's a bodybuilder. He's very in shape. And, um, and he would... Uh, you know, he would he would show up at at, at borrowers' uh, place of business or sometimes their house, and you know, four different borrowers we talked to called the police on him. You know, one borrower went out and bought a gun. They were so scared that uh, something bad was going to happen to them because they were behind on this loan. So I feel sorry for the borrowers, as, as, as you mentioned. Do they have any type of recourse uh, for these types of lenders um, to the extent that they fall behind on on their loan? 
Yeah, so there's all kinds of other ways we, we've written about that, that these um, companies have to collect on these debts in some ways uh, much more efficient and, and, um, and shocking than, than this method of sending uh, Gino around. Um, but in terms of the, the, the intimidation that borrowers describe to us, you know, we don't know that there's been any consequences to the company that employed Gino. We should mention that after a few complaints, they, they did part ways with him earlier this year, and he's working at another cash advance company, but this time he's in sales. He's in uh, sales. Yeah. New business. Yeah. Gino, new yeah. business. Well, that's what's interesting, too. You did get some insight, too. Uh, is it the company Par? And this was the company who's been giving loans to these smaller businesses. You got a little insight into this business as well. Yeah, so Par, Par is an interesting company um, because uh, you know one of the people involved in it, um, it is uh, that was collect. That's a kind of a broker that works for it and is also collecting um, debts on their behalf. Is uh, is a guy who prosecutors have have characterized as an associate of the Gambino crime family, and um, he he's not the only um, uh, alleged organized crime figure who's in the cash advance industry right now. We found a couple others uh, we mentioned in the story. And and so an industry that, you know, you probably wouldn't see a, a, a registered broker-dealer be able to employ someone with that kind of uh, criminal past. But um, in this industry, it's it's if you can sell, you can you can work. And so for the cash advance business, like if I look at the industry, is there just a lot of mom-and-pop operations out there, or is there two or three big companies that are maybe a little bit more legitimate? Um, what's the structure of the industry? It's it's very diverse, and we're kind of focused on the the kind of riskier end of the industry, uh, that, which is where like companies like Par that we mentioned is in, where they're, they're, they have to be very aggressive because they're making very risky loans at usually triple-digit interest rates and pretty aggressive collection tactics. Wow. There are, you know, there's other parts of, both cash advance and other alternative lending that's not quite as intense as that. Were you scared while you were doing this stuff? I know I already asked you this. <laughs> no, I mean, because of the mob connections. And and I think, you know, was Gino cool with this story? We, Are we, you reporting? We went way out of our way to, we, we spoke to Gino, we took, spoke to the folks at PAR, and we've given them a chance to tell their side. Okay. It's great reporting. And um, is there still more to come? Uh, that. That's it for the moment. <laughs> okay. It's great reporting, as I said. Zach Miter, thank you so much. He's projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. Meanwhile, I'm putting all my money under my mattress. Uh, ETFs. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the world of ETFs. They increased holdings in gold for a ninth straight day. Money moving into bond funds as well. Just some of the trends, Paul, that we're seeing in this current market sell-off. And our next guest says, look for investors to put more money into the world of ETFs. Ed Rosenberg is back with us, head of exchange-traded funds at American Century Investments. $155 billion in assets under management based in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Wearing his jeans in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You can do that on radio <laughs> just gonna say so listen first of all i want to know about flows where where's the money moving in and out right now you know so it's been interesting this year in flows let's do if you look at the last three years of flows it's been about 900 billion dollars going in etfs right this year is very similar to eight, uh, 17 18 was a huge year and where you're seeing the money go is three places which is the most interesting most of it's domestic about 40 45 percent of its domestic securities International is a smaller piece. It's around $44 billion this year. 
What's fascinating about that is at when we hit April, it was $38 billion. Dropped to $22 billion by June with the trade wars, and it swung back up. I mean, if you look today, I think some of the emerging markets ETFs are still in positive territory even with all this volatility. But flows are down from last year? They are. Dramatically. They're significantly. It's, yeah. La- 2017 was a tremendous year in terms of asset flows. It was a record year. It was about $460, $470 billion. We're around $240, $230 billion, somewhere in that neighborhood this year to date through November. Yeah. Right? But the other place money's going is fixed income. Right? And it's, it's still the same place. It's that shorter end of the curve. It's that short to intermediate portion. You're seeing a lot of money going there. And that is a, roughly about 20 30% in the, of that space. And then there's a small piece like commodities, others make up the rest. But those three big areas, it's domestic, international, and fixed income are really capturing all the flows. How about when we think about uh, volatility, when we think about 2018, the trading this year across asset classes, yep. maybe it just seems more volatile than, than it's been in the past. Um, how do ETFs perform in terms of flows when the volatility across multiple at- asset classes seems to be you know, higher than average levels? Well, I think what you see with flows is people tend to be more surgical in what they do, right? You're not just – in this type of market, you can't buy on the dips, right, because you don't know what's falling. You could literally catch a falling knife as you're going through things. So what you tend to see is, one, tax loss harvesting is because we're near the end of the year. So people will sell something, move into something else that's either similar or unique. But when you have these drops, people reset their portfolios for going forward. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. Um, there's been a lot of talk that overseas the dollar has been strong throughout the year. And as you look, could you know, does the dollar stay where it is? Does it drop? You've seen more flows lately in the international potentially because of that on part of some of these rebalances. You know, we kept saying that volatility, the the low vol that we have seen over the last decade, that that was abnormal, right? And yes. that volatility coming back to the markets. What we're seeing, though, today, I mean, we've got almost 1,000-point swings on the Dow Jones Industrial mm-hmm. Average today as well as yesterday. Is that normal? No, it's not necessarily normal. So what's interesting about it is normally, historically, just going 1% swings up and down is usually about 15% of the time, Right. Like 2017 was very low on those 1% swings. This year is just a higher year on that. It's almost like it's making up for it. You can ex- Normally, you would expect about 15% of the trading days to be about a 1% plus or minus. And the volatility we're experiencing, I think there's a number of factors. For years, we had, what, about a 10-year bull market. Everyone kept saying, it has to fall, it has to fall. Then you've got news on companies. You've got trade wars. Right? Earnings may not have been where they've been, maybe because of the trade wars, or only they were there because of the tax cuts. And so all this news plays into effect, and people are wondering, when's it, when's it going to drop? And we've seen volatility pick up. Maybe the political aspect that's going on in the U.S. is helping that. And so you're seeing a drop in the market. And I think that's going to go into 2000, you know, go into the next year, in 2019. And realistically, when you look at this, there's always this trend that – the year after the Fed starts raising rates, the markets tend to be volatile. We always forget that, but it happened. It just happened late in the year for us. Right, exactly. So, so real quickly, 2019, is it going to be a good flow year, do you think? I think it will be a good flow year. I mean, I think the average flows for ETFs have settled in somewhere between 200 and $300 billion a year. I mean, I think you'll see volatility, which will taper some of that in the first half of the year, but I don't see those flows tapering at all beyond that. We shall see. Ed Rosenberg, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Nice to get your insight. Have a great holiday. Ed Rosenberg, he's head of exchange-traded funds at American Century Investments, $155 billion in assets under management, based in Kansas City, Missouri, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Give it all away. Everybody wants you.
So, yeah, there's a bunch of folks who want to do initial public offerings come 2019, but it may be getting tougher. Eric Gordon has been crunching some numbers. He's joining us now with more on the IPO market. Eric is a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan with us once again from Ann Arbor, Michigan. You know, uh, it's interesting, Eric. There's a story on the Bloomberg about how the months-long sell-off that we've seen in tech stocks has started to kind of cast some doubts on the prospects of companies that have yet to go public. How do you see it? Maybe you want to go back and and talk a little bit about 2018 and maybe what that might uh, set up for in 2019. Boy, I think they've got it exactly right. I mean, if you are a tech company, you would be much better off having gone public six months ago than trying to go public three or six months from now. Uh, 2018, uh, up until the end of the third quarter, was very kind to tech companies and to IPOs as a whole, but the fourth quarter and the last few weeks have been just brutal. So, Professor, the volatility that we're seeing in the broader markets can't be good for uh, IPOs. I think you kind of hinted at that. So what are the bankers and what are the companies doing as they try to think about accessing the public markets and what appear to be you know, very turbulent markets? You know, if you're a banker advising a company, you're thinking two things. One, let's speed it up. Uh, instead of the middle or the third quarter, let's try to do it in the first quarter. And the other thing you want to do is craft a story that makes your company unique. So the the tech industry as a whole is bouncing around and maybe not looking so good. But here's why our company is different. So I think we'll see a lot of emphasis on stories. And, uh, you know, they're very good at picking out the one number that makes the company look better. That's right. Uh, I remember those days just for myself. Um, You know, we think about 2019 in terms of the IPO market. There are some really big potential deals out there coming from the tech sector. You think about some of the unicorns that we've been hearing about for a long time, such as Uber or Lyft and Airbnb and and, and some others. Um, See, these are going to be potentially very big deals, very big valuations. What do you think these companies, what do you think the prognosis, uh, the, the focus is for these companies in 2019? Do you think they can get these deals done? You know, I think the biggest ones, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the, the ones that, that have a lot of interest in them, I think they can get them done. They might not get the, the biggest price that they were hoping for, but I, I think they will get out. People are still very interested in Uber. When you get to the next tier, you know, the uh, Pinterests, the maybe even Airbnb, which is a little, little bit of an unusual one, Slack. I, I think they're, they, they, might have a, they might have a lot of trouble. But this, you know, this story that, that you guys have followed you know, all year of these companies saying, well, we don't need to go public. We have all the money we need. They kept getting huge, huge private investments. Um, boy, that story might come back and bite them. Well, it's interesting, too. I'm looking at the Renaissance IPO ETF. It's down about 19% this year. So this is, you know, companies that have IPO this year. And, and, and in terms of their performance, I mean, I would say if I was running a company, I certainly wouldn't want to IPO into a, a volatile market, Paul. No, and I think, uh, you know, I'm not sure your viewpoints in this, Professor, but, it, you know, we've had such a very strong private equity market, particularly mm-hmm. for the technology companies that, you know, companies that historically would have gone public, you know, three or four or five years into their life are waiting to seven, eight, nine, ten years because they just don't need the public equity. Right. Isn't Uber like 10 years old or something? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think, you know, a lot of times the reason they're going public is simply to get liquidity for some of their original shareholders um, as opposed to really needing, uh, you know, primary capital. So, um, you know, but that being said, you know, some of these deals, there's being generally well received, particularly from the technology space. So, Professor, as you think about 2019, are there any particular sectors that you expect to do 
maybe exceptionally well or might be left out uh, of the uh, IPO opportunity? I think the sectors that are going to be a problem are the ones where it's a story of, well, we're just at the beginning of our growth and our growth is going to really ramp up here and we're going to go from consuming you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in losses into turning a profit because we're going to scale. Um, it's easy to say scale. It's harder to do it. I mean, look at Blue Apron. Blue Apron has scaled down, not up. So I think those companies where the story is, look, we look lousy now, but when we scale, it's going to be great. They're going to have troubles. Companies that have shown, you know, good, good, good business models, uh, companies that are maybe not profitable in the accounting sense, but cash flow positive in terms of just, you know, not needing cash, being able to throw off cash. I think, I think they're the ones that will do better. What does it mean, though? This has really caught my attention. This is uh, the IPO of SoftBank, uh, their domestic telecom unit. Um, it has lost more investors on the first trading day than any other IPO, according to our data. What does that say about SoftBank? Yeah, you know, I saw that on the terminal uh, a few hours ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, more money lost than any other IPO in one day. Uh, it mean, Well, it means a lot of individual investors in Japan got burned. Um, it was also a huge offering, so right, yes, a little bit yeah. of perspective there. Japan's biggest ever, it was $24 billion. I mean, that's, that's big. Um, uh, and that's part of why so much money was lost. But I, I think what it means is you can't be sure. I mean, SoftBank is a successful company. It's a big brand name. That's how they were able to uh, float it to so many individual investors. I think what it shows is big established company, big brand name. You can still get burned. So, Professor, one of, you know, we're talking about a mega deals. One of the big, you know, one of the mega deals that did not come to market yet is that Saudi uh, Aramco deal. Um, we've been t- hearing about that for a couple of years now. Do you have any updated guidance on kind of when you think, if if ever, that deal will come to market? <laughs> yeah, I don't know when the when the sun comes up in the west. Perhaps um, that's been on and off for a couple of reasons. One is oil price fluctuations. So at one oil price, you know they want to float it, um, but nobody wants to buy it at a different oil price. They want to. They don't want to float it. Other people would buy it, um, but they also have a very basic problem, which is the disclosures you have to make when you go public are disclosures that they have been very leery about making, specifically disclosures about what their oil reserves are. You know, Saudis just don't want everybody to know that because it could have political implications, it could have oil pricing implications, and yet they would have to disclose that. So, you know, I I think we're going to be teased by that one every couple of years, but I'm not expecting it to happen. The IPO that you're looking most forward to, uh, Eric, in 2019? Um, I, you know, oddly enough, it would be Uber because Uber is such an interesting company. We actually don't know what kind of company it's going to be. Is it going to be a company that delivers people? Does it deliver food and groceries? Does it have robo drivers? Right. What is Uber going to be? So it'd be interesting to see what they say about themselves when they try to go public. All right. Well, we will certainly see what happens uh, with it in 2019. Eric Gordon, thank you so much. Professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. (laughs) 
for sure. Selling leading to another selling day. It's been a tough week. I was just doing some number crunching. We're still uh, we're down about more than five percent of both the S and P and the Dow uh, already this week, and we've got one more trading session to go. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the market action. Bloomberg News cross at, uh, cross asset reporter Sarah Ponzik is with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, also joining Paul and myself, Tony Scherer, Director of Research and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. I'm curious if he's been doing some buying and we'll get to that in just a moment. But Sarah, set the scene. Um, Pretty broad-based selling again. It was pretty broad-based selling. If you look at the different sectors, utilities was the only one in the green. We're on the defensive level, of course, but only up 30 basis points. And then you go down the list. You look on a single stock basis. You saw some of the large tech names like Apple really leading the way. But, of course, energy just getting hit once again as oil just keeps falling below $50 a barrel. Pretty amazing. So there's really nowhere to hide in the equity markets today. Is that right? That's what it seems. I mean, unless you were in utilities, and this has been a trend. Some people have been positioning more defensively. But even some of the more defensive areas of the market, you look at consumer staples, for example. You look at healthcare, which a lot of people have been talking about as a defensive place to go in this market. They both fell over 1% today. So, yeah, really hard to find any area of safety in this market. Everybody kind of thrown in the towel. It certainly feels that way. Tony Scherer, come on in there uh, over at Smead Capital Management. You guys uh, have a couple of billions dollars under a management. Um, How do you see things? Is this a buying opportunity for you, especially some of the names you might like? They're a lot cheaper than they were a few months ago. Yeah, they sure are. No, you know, this is a time we've been telling people to look for high quality companies that are investable, that throw off cash, free cash flow and net income and earnings that, uh, that, that you can pick up into and, and own for the next market cycle, for the next three to five plus years. A time where when you find quality that's on sale is a great time to pick your spots, step into stock picking we think is going to matter a lot more than the passively managed indexes. Uh, the, you know, just throwing money at the market here is not the thing you should be doing. So what do you think, uh, Tony, about the banks? Uh, Obviously just beaten down here, lots of volatility, um, you know, mixed results. How are you guys thinking about the uh, the banks as you head into 2019? I'm I'm glad you asked. Uh, Look, this – we would go back to something Buffett said in late – I think it was late August. Uh, Don't confuse the economy with the stock market, right? And we have had a long stretch of time where stock market investors have uh, looked and, and guided the rudder of their ship based on what they view as the macro environment going forward. Okay, and they've looked to the Fed to do that, and now they're looking at a Fed that they disagree with and that they don't like, and, and they're kind of kicking and screaming over it. Uh, uh, Parts of the economy might be intermediately peaking out, but there's a lot of other parts that have not even gotten going yet. Just look at consumer balance sheets that are very unleveraged to to, to get a sense of where things could go if debt were to be taken on by the biggest generation in in America with the millennials just kind of getting going right now. Look at the velocity of money, which is kind of an indicator of what's getting lent into, which is not much. It's very low. It's on the floor. There's a lot of other things that could 
kick into gear that could drive things going forward. And by the way, corporate profits are still very, very healthy. They're looking to be double-digit uh, uh, growth year over year next year. That's a slowing from what they've been growing at, but it's still very healthy. Tony, speaking of a strong economy and strong profits and earnings going into next year, what's your take? What do you tell people who are now saying that maybe the market is sussing something out, that the Fed isn't seeing, that the people aren't seeing about the economy, saying that maybe this is actually saying that a recession could be in the offing? Are you more on the other side that this is still a healthy correction? We know we really are more on the other side because, again, when you've got this pig going through the python in the way of demographics coming into play that, again, have been late to get going and have been late to really take on the normal things of life, such as buying a house and et cetera and getting married and having kids and stuff, those are, there's multiplier effects to when that happens. And when that happens, 86 million people strong. You know, the Fed is sitting there. They've got to do what they've got to do to manage the economy. They're not sitting there trying to necessarily manage the, the high net worth client out there to make uh, the stock market go up. Uh, you know, they want to have a stable financial system, but that's something altogether different than a market that just continually goes up, right? So, Tony, given that uh, your view on the market, and it seems a little bit more constructive than certainly what we're seeing in the marketplace over the last few days, where... Where, where do you think the opportunities are on the long side, and maybe what are some sectors you're, that you're avoiding going into 2019? Right, and to say that I'm constructive, don't, don't misunderstand. I mean, I think this is a, a bear market. I mean, there's a lot of indices out there that are in the 20% or greater downdraft already, and even the major markets, S&P and, and the Dow, are in the mid-teens on the downside, what, 15 16% or so on the downside. So, and I, it, you know, until everybody gives up, this – downdraft that we're seeing, you know, is likely not going to be over. That's why I say this is a time for true investors to pick their spots into high-quality companies. I mean, Ajit Jain just buying, buying $20 million, writing a check of his own money to buy a Berkshire Hathaway stock, as an example. It, that's very likely a guy saying, hey, I want to be a true investor in, 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 in great companies right. to throw off free cash flow going forward, right? That's does, what you want to be doing. It does kind of feel like a little bit of market capitulation, but maybe maybe yes. not quite yet, but it certainly feels that way. Um, Tony Scherer, thank you so much. Director of Research and Co-Portfolio Manager over at Smead Capital Management, $2.3 billion in assets under management. Uh, Tony joining us on the phone from Seattle. Sarah, thank you so much. She's our Bloomberg News cross-asset reporter, Sarah Ponsek. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.